Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome back, friends and gentities. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and with me again is my brilliant colleague, Diana Foe. I had to stick around to see what happens, Marco. Nothing like a disturbing cliffhanger to keep me around. Well, in our previous episode, we shared part one of A.C. Wise's eerie and disturbing story about a troubled Hollywood starlet and a haunted studio executive. Well, here's a little bit of a recap out there. Mary newly arrived in Hollywood, is plagued by her supernatural ability to see dead girls. And they're all victims of the same killer. Her powers become entangled as she makes her film debut of George, who's kind of scummy in his own right, to be honest. And their film's release seems to predict the gruesome Black Dahlia murder. So let's spool up the second reel of excerpts from a film, 1942 to 1987, written by A.C. Wise and voiced by Julia Nippon. Silver Screen Dream Productions, October 1965. What the hell are you saying, George? You want to make a snuff film? No, Jesus, no, aren't you listening? George's hands tremble, so he shoves them under the desk as he looks across it at Leonard, his sometime business partner. He can't help thinking of a film, one that doesn't exist anymore, wrapped in brown paper and delivered to his desk. He sees it when he tries to sleep, playing on the screen of his eyelids. There's something there, something Mary was trying to tell him. He needs to drag the horror out into the light. All those dead girls, he owes them an apology. I want to recreate a snuff film. George is aware he's slurring his words, but if he doesn't get them out fast enough, he'll choke. The movie is about a guy who fakes snuff films. It doesn't matter why. But the more he makes, the harder it gets for him to tell reality from fiction until he crosses the line. Or maybe he doesn't. Who knows? The whole idea is the audience can't tell because the guy in the movie can't tell. He's gotten lost inside his movie. It's a cautionary tale. I can't sell a cautionary tale. Leonard frowns. George wipes sweat from his palms. Okay, how about this then? It's a movie within a movie, so the audience is two layers removed. It's safe. It's okay for them to be titillated by the sex and the violence. It looks real, but it can't possibly be real. George hears the words like someone else is speaking, 
and he wants to punch that guy right in the face. He wants to hear bone crunch, watch blood spilled down a crisp white shirt. Leonard's expression changes, a smirk edging out the frown. George wants to punch him too, but he keeps his hands where they are. You're not a director, George. You're a producer. That's what you've always been. Leonard chomps on an unlit cigar. George sees the dollar signs spinning behind his eyes. It's all show when Leonard throws his hands up. What the hell? If that's the movie you want and you're putting up the lion's share of the cash, who am I to say no? I'll get you some hotshot kid to write it. Find you your ingenue. The word no sticks in George's throat. I want to see headshots, George says. Fine. There's a sour note in Leonard's voice, like George has admitted something shameful. He tries not to blush. Leonard stands, but doesn't leave. What time's your shindig tonight? Leonard asks with a twist to his mouth, as if the thought of spending time with George socially is suddenly distasteful somehow. Did George invite Leonard to a party tonight? He doesn't remember. It's an open house, come whenever you want. Someone will let you in. George takes a guess. It sounds right. That's the way his parties have always been. Free flowing, an endless succession of strangers, names and faces he doesn't bother to remember. They all want something from him, feeding off him like parasites, and he feeds off them in turn. The door opens and closes. Leonard is gone, and George is alone. George wonders briefly if anyone would even miss him if he failed to show up at his own party. But he squares his shoulders. It's his duty to be a good host. Tonight, there will be a party. Tomorrow, Leonard will arrive at his office with a handful of glossy 8 by 10 photographs, a whole bouquet of girls for George to choose from. He imagines shuffling the headshots like a deck of cards, using them to tell the future. Except George already knows his future. It's the same as his past. He's tried this before, with Bloody Rose in 1959. It was a movie about a disappearance or a sensational murder, the line between the two all blurred. His ingenue was a girl calling herself Lily, a girl lying about her age, a girl with a sense of running away tucked under her skin. So much like Mary, but without the scent of desert and pine trees clinging to her from all the distance she'd run. Oh, her eyes were bright enough, pupils all blown with drug-fueled desire, but they were nothing like Mary's eyes. Blue-violet girls will be different, George swears it. Leaning back at his desk, he closes his eyes and watches it unfold. The ring of bruises left around the victim's throats after the killer is done with them. The metaphor extended with flowers scattered on their graves. He reaches for his drink. There won't just be one starlet this time, but a whole string of beautiful dead girls, too many to ignore. 
his film will be a mystery and an apology. Maybe, just maybe, it'll be enough this time. Behind his eyelids, the imagined movie changes. It's Lily with contusions around her throat, Mary with flowers on her grave. George's eyes snap open. Violets aren't bruises. Death isn't lovely. But he's trying to blur the line again. Sugar around a bitter pill, so the audience will swallow it whole. He scans the corners of his office, half expecting to find Mary there, or Lily. He can't tell whether he's disappointed to find himself utterly alone. After the baby, he paid to take care of it. Lily went home, back to Kansas, or Texas, or wherever the hell she was from. Bloody Rose was a critical success, but she didn't even stick around for the preview. Audiences ate it up, and it left him sick. As sick as he knows blue-violet girls will make him feel, but he can't stop. Every time he watched Bloody Rose, he kept looking for things that weren't there. Flickers of movement shivering across the screen. He wants Mary to haunt him. He wants it so badly, it hurts. If he could just see her again, maybe he could make it okay. Maybe she would forgive him. George reaches for his drink and finds it empty. He takes a swig straight from the bottle rolling around at the bottom of his desk drawer instead. Almost empty, too. He lets the bottle fall and it clunks uselessly to the floor. Mary Evelyn has been gone for almost 20 years. But how can he be sure she's dead? There's a headstone in Mountain View Cemetery, the same place Elizabeth Short is buried. But there's nothing underneath. No body, only a film that cuts off before the end. A film he burned. Some days, he knows beyond a doubt what he saw. Other days, the line is blurred. There's room for death to be clean and beautiful again. He has to know. George stands, holding onto the edge of his desk. He fumbles open the drawer opposite from the one with the bottle, then goes to his knees to dig beneath layers of paper. Good old George. He never throws anything away unless it's a living, breathing girl. He pulls the film canister free and hugs it to his chest. A seance. He'll call Mary Evelyn Eve back from the dead with the ashes of her last film. He'll fall on his knees and beg her to forgive him. It'll be like it was always meant to be. Mary at his side, his ingenue, his star. He looks around his office for something. What? What does he need to conduct a seance? George's mouth is dry, the back of his throat fuzzed and aching. He needs another drink is what he needs. He needs witnesses, an audience, his party. He makes his way to the door, clutching the film canister under one arm. The sky is dark 
but lights burn all along Hollywood Boulevard, smearing in his unsteady vision. The night is crisp, clear, a breeze ruffling his hair and tugging his clothes. He considers walking all the way home, but his feet won't agree on a direction. He calls a car, slumping into the back seat and holding tight to Mary Evelyn's remains. George dozes. He must have, though he doesn't remember falling asleep. He comes to himself as someone presses a drink into his hand. Everything is lit like the inside of a silver screen, a movie seen the wrong way around. Panic slams him for a brief moment, but no, the canister is still tucked under his arm. A bright, beautiful girl swirls past him, dropping a kiss on his cheek as she heads toward his pool. She's wearing stiletto heels. She doesn't bother to take them off before she dives into the water, splashing with all the other bright, beautiful nymphs. George doesn't recognize anyone. Did he invite them? He downs the drink in his hand and comes up coughing and sputtering. Champagne. Empty bottles are scattered on tables and chairs. Some even float in the water. Broken glass crunches under George's feet. He's kicked over a thin-stemmed flute and crushed it. Swell party, George, someone says. Bare feet. He's worried she'll cut herself on the glass. But she's already gone. A shooting star off to drown herself. It's not a party, he says, or tries to say. It's a wake. The garden is dark. The only light is from the pool's depths, leaving the swimmers' shadows lit from below. They all seem to be girls. They always are, dying to be discovered, desperate to be made. But in the half light, they might as well be sharks or mermaids, silkies or sirens, or something more terrible by far. George watches them glide in the dark, liquid motion. Is Lillian among them? Mary, Eva, Evelyn, Eve? No, she's dead. He has the proof in his hands. He pries open the canister. The world tilts and he tilts with it, emptying the ashes of the film, Mary's film, into the water. He's keeping his promise to make her a star just not in the way he originally intended. He watched the film, and it infected him. Every movie he's made since then, whether he means it to or not, contains a piece of this one. Now he's spreading it even farther. The starlets swimming beneath him, he's infecting them too. Mary Evelyn is not just one star. She is all of them. Time to come home, he says. He sways, perilously close to falling in, but he keeps his balance, or something pushes him back. He isn't wanted here, he isn't needed. This sacred communion is between Mary and the girls. Her ashes swirl through the impossibly blue water 
and all the pretty little want-to-bees swim in the ghost of her, soaking her through their skin. George desperately wants to join them. He wants to throw himself into the water. He wants to drown. What the hell has he done? The empty film canister slips from his fingers to the ground. George follows, his legs folding beneath him. He puts his face in his hands and weeps beside the pool, while all around him, fae starlets, nightmares, and unreal creatures swim. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hollywood Hills, March 1947. I've been reading a lot lately. On set, there are long stretches with nothing to do except smoke and drink and wait. So I've been reading history and religion, mythology and astronomy, weather patterns and agriculture. It's all connected, everything. I was on to something with Elizabeth and why her ghost is clearer than the rest. The cameras made it so. All those pictures of her plastered everywhere. The image becomes the thing and the image gets passed on and on, and she's resurrected over and over again. It's like sympathetic magic. A black goat is sent out into the desert, carrying the sins of the entire village. Communion wine and wafers become the blood and body of a man nailed to a cross. The chief of a tribe consumes the flesh of his enemy to gain their power. Symbols have power. The man killing his way across America, that's a kind of magic too. One killing begets more killings. Copycats spreading outward from a single gruesome death. How do you stop something like that? I stop it by becoming a symbol too. A woman dies up on screen and she stands for all women everywhere. A woman who already has other women folded up inside her. Ghosts stitched onto her skin. The film gets passed on, the image endures. And no one can ever forget those ghosts or pretend not to see them ever again. Silver Screen Productions, December 1972. George switches on the projector. Drawn shades darken the room as he watches the rough cut of Lady in Green. He's made a ghost story this time. 
a story about a man haunted by the death of his lover, a married woman killed in a car crash on the way back to her husband, even though they both knew he was no good for her. He's trying again. Flickering against the blank space on his office wall, rain slicks the LA streets. Windshield wipers sling it out of the way, but it isn't enough. His lady in green strains forward to see, but she's crying. This is the scene where she dies. In the next scene, she returns as a ghost, a phantom hitchhiker causing drivers to veer off the road and have crashes of their own. George holds his breath, leaning forward like the actress. He peers through the same rain she does, straining to see, heart beating hard. The electricity of the movie set storm, telling him something terrible is about to happen. A shape appears in the road, and George's heart nearly stops. A glitch in the film, a splice cutting in a later scene where the ghost causes a crash. But no. The sweep of headlights illuminates the figure through the pouring rain. Mary Evelyn. Mary. Eva. Lillian. Eve. The lady in green slams on the brakes. The car slews. She takes her hands off the wheel, throws her arms across her face. Shattered glass flies everywhere. Metal and his leading lady both scream. Through it all, Mary Evelyn continues staring directly at him. George is halfway to reaching for the phone on his desk, calling down to his director, his AP, someone, anyone, to find out if, oh God, He's killed his leading lady. His hand hangs in the air, not touching the phone. He sets it back on his desk and lets out a shaky breath. They never shot that scene, not that way. The lady in green dies and becomes a ghost, not vice versa. Time does not fold in this film. His lady in green is not her own haunting. George was there when they shot the scene, just as he has been on set every single day, hovering over the director's shoulder, peering through the camera lens, judging every shot as it is set up and framed. The scene playing out on his office wall is impossible. It isn't real. He rises, tripping over the edge of the carpet as he reaches for the projector. Instead of hitting the stop button, the whole thing goes over, and George with it, tangling and crashing to the ground. The projector jams, devouring celluloid even as he tries to pull it free. Faint wisps of acrid smoke sting his nostrils. The film is burned in half. Edges bubbled and crisped. The entire car crash scene gone, so he can never know for sure. This is what he wanted, isn't it? This is what he tried to do seven years ago. But no, that can't be right. Mary Evelyn is waiting for him at home. Or he hasn't met her yet. 
He tries to cram the burned halves back into the projector, but his hands shake too badly. Defeated, George holds the ends of the film in either hand. They'll have to reshoot. No one will know the difference, except for him. But the difference will be an important one. Mary Evelyn won't be there next time. She was never there. He let her slip through his fingers, and there's no getting her back again. Harwood Estate, May 1942. Do you really think you can make me a star? She props herself on one elbow, looking down at him. Her curls are must, her lipstick chewed off, leaving her mouth mostly clean. Pure, he thinks, bruised, only faintly stained. The thoughts drift through his post-pleasure haze, teetering on the edge of sleep. Lovely. She still smells of salt spray and beach air. When he closes his eyes, he sees her through the camera lens, waving, her lips shaping words he can't hear. Of course I can, it's what I do. He lights a cigarette, it takes him two tries. He lights one for her too. There's a glint in her eyes, something hungry as she watches him. She shouldn't be here, he thinks. This is all wrong. She flops back against the pillow, hair spread in a halo around her. My name isn't really Lillian, she says. Hmm? Sleep tries to tug him down. He wants to sink into it, into a place where he doesn't have to think or feel anything but this warm, sated glow. It's Mary, she says. But I go by Evelyn because Mary was my mother's name. Was? Something in her tone snags at him, pulls him upward, and now it's his turn to prop himself on one elbow to look at her. She died, I found out yesterday. An accident. She fell down the stairs. Mary, Evelyn, Lillian, whatever her name is blows a stream of smoke toward the ceiling. Then the girl in his bed stubs out her cigarette and stands, pulling the bedclothes with her and leaving him exposed. She holds the sheet against her body, draping her like an ancient Roman goddess. She looks straight at him, fixing him so he can't help feeling everything he's seen up until now has been a lie, a performance. The camera never switched off for her. I suppose that's what happens, isn't it? Her eyes are hard. He doesn't know what to say. There's no air left in the room. He can only stare at her, at the line of her mouth, hungry, burning. He's touched her, been inside her, but he doesn't know a thing about her. The sickly sweet taste of spun sugar melts on his tongue, tinged with salt from the sea. He turns away, swinging his legs over the side of the bed. I'll call a car to take you home. Yes, she says.
and the chill of her voice sends ice up his spine. I imagine you'll do. Hollywood Hills, December 1947. This is it, make or break time. By the end of the week, I'll be a star, burning brighter than any other light in the sky. I haven't slept, not since I left the Christmas Eve party at George's. I've been up, smoking. Elizabeth sat with me. She was at George's party too. All the dead girls were. They floated in the pool. They stood at guests' elbows while they drank champagne. They watched everything, and no one saw them but me. We shared cigarettes and watched the sunrise. Me and Liz, Eliza, Beth, Betty. We all have a dozen names here. A dozen skins we can wear over our own when we want to hide. When it gets to be too much. When we're tired. Sometime around 4 a.m., the sky got perfectly blue. A blue I've never seen before. Like velvet like a bruise before it starts to heal, like the shadows at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, or my mother's favorite dress, the one my daddy bought her to say he was sorry, the dress he buried her in, at least that's what I heard. The color matched Eliza's skin exactly. I bought a gun. It's easier to do than I imagined. I have knives in my kitchen, the kind people use to debone things. Stockings can be used as garrots in a pinch. Any number of objects in my apartment can inflict blunt force trauma. There are so many ways to die in Hollywood. So many ways to die no matter where you are, as long as you're a girl. I should be afraid, but I'm not. I have a camera I stole from George. The raw footage will be delivered to his office tomorrow. He was my first, the first one to see me and put me up on the big screen. It seems only fitting that he should be my messenger as well. He'll be my ground zero, the point of impact, spreading out ripples of ghosts around the world. I have to believe he'll hold up his end of the deal. How could he refuse a death this sensational after all? I'm not afraid. After he's seen my film, it'll be up to him whether he keeps his promise from the day we met, whether he makes me a star. Silver Screen Dream Productions, December 1947. It's the day after Christmas. George stares at the package sitting in the center of his desk, wrapped in brown paper, bearing his name and no return address. The shape of it is clear, a canister for a film reel. It's barely 10 a.m., but he pours himself a measure of scotch, neat, and swallows hard against the sour taste in his throat. The projector is already set up aimed at the wall. He threads the film, kills the light, and seats himself to watch ghosts come to life 
just for him. A man lies on a bed in a tiny apartment. He looks a lot like George. He looks hungry and more than a little drunk. He's poorer, more run down, rougher around the edges. But the longer George watches, the more he thinks they could be twins. Pitch perfect casting. The scenery is spot on too. He's never seen Mary Evelyn's apartment, but he's certain he's looking at it now. The sheets on the bed are silk, or a reasonable approximation. There's a lamp on the bedside table with a beaded shade. Brass bedposts draped in lengths of scarves and stockings. The way they hang implies violence. Everything in the room is fraught. Tension fairly crackles across his skin. The base of that lamp could crush someone's skull. Those stockings could so easily be wrapped around someone's throat. Where are these thoughts coming from? He isn't a violent person, but he can't help picturing it, running the film ahead to its inevitable end. There's a straight razor on the bedside table. The drawer beneath it is ever so slightly open. And inside, George is certain he sees a gun. A woman steps into the frame. Her back is to the camera, but her shape is achingly familiar. George's breath catches. The woman lets her sheer dressing gown fall. It might be the very same one from The White Canary Sings. The first time Mary Evelyn was up on the silver screen. George leans forward. For just a moment, a heartbeat, a frame. There's someone else in the room. Where shadows pool in the corner behind the beaded lamp, there's a woman with bruise-colored eyes. Her smile is too wide, extending all the way across her cheeks, bleeding off the edge of her skin. The film jitters, a splice stitched badly in, and there is the woman lying splayed in the park. Her body cut right in two, torso here and legs over there, her intestines coiled beneath her. Sickness rises in George's throat, nearly choking him. Cut back to the bedroom. The space all around the bed is crowded with ghosts, cramming every available inch and not taking up any room. Cut, railway tracks and a woman's body beaten to a bloody pulp. Cut, and the man on the bed shifts in anticipation. The cuts begin to blur. One scene, one location, bleeding into another until he can't tell what is happening where. A small dark space, the mouth of a storm drain clotted with rotten leaves. Grainy, dim, a shape, indistinct. He can barely see, he doesn't want to see. An arm bent at a terrible angle, a thigh, a knee, a body folded up like fetal origami and shoved into the concrete opening. How is Mary doing this? Why? Why can't he look away? Splice. 
George wants to reach through the image flickering on the wall and shake the man on the bed by the shoulders, tell him to run. The woman's reflection hangs, caught like a glint in the man's eye as she moves closer to the bed. George thinks of an old wives' tale he heard once, where the last image a person sees is printed onto their retina at the moment of death, like a photograph. Jump. Wind stirs a tarp, sifting dust and garbage and revealing a hand. Pale fingers curled inward like a dead spider. No, George thinks. Please, no, no more. He can't take it, not this. But he can't close his eyes either. He can't help but see. On screen, Mary, Evelyn, Eva, Eve pulls the bedside drawer open all the way, leaving the gun within easy reach. George's heart beats through his skin. He rubs a hand over his face, stubble rasping against his palm. He needs a shave. He needs to sober up, leave town. He needs to turn the projector off and not watch the end of the film. He pours himself another drink instead. Cut, and the angle of view changes. A rain-slick street, which looks terribly familiar. A woman running, dark curls bouncing. He tells himself she could be anyone. It doesn't have to be Mary Evelyn and the white canary sings, even though the shot, the pacing, the beats are all the same. The woman's heels strike the pavement, loud as a gunshot. Her breath is ragged. She never once turns to look over her shoulder, but there's something behind her, someone behind her. Except George knows he's the only one here, watching her run straight for the dead end of an alleyway. And that's where the scene should end, where the white canary sings, cut to black leaving the wannabe starlet's death to the imagination. This time, the camera doesn't turn away. It follows the woman into the alley. No lights, only the faint murky glow coming from overhead between the two buildings. Almost like it's real. George strains to see through the pouring rain. Cut, back to the bedroom scene. Dead girls everywhere. Ghosts between each frame. Sex wrapped up with the violence as the woman straddles the man on the bed, rocks her hips, tilts her head back so her dark curls spill between her shoulder blades, but never quite far enough that her face comes fully into the frame. In the alley, flesh collides in a different way. A ragged scream, a wet, heart-rending sound. Black. The image on the wall judders and disappears. The film spins on the reel, making a hollow click, click, clicking sound. George jumps to his feet. There has to be more. He has to know how it ends. He catches the reel, slicing his hand as the metal edge spins past him. He yanks, and the projector falls over with a crash and the pop of shattered glass. The end of the film on the reel is burned. 
the final scenes, whatever they were, turned to ash. Did he do that? Or was it always that way? He lets the reel fall, film crackling and fluttering its way to the ground. The movie remains all around him, bleeding off the celluloid and into the reel. His office is filled with ghosts, women with hollow eyes, bruises and cut skin. Women sliced open, their throats purpled with crushing thumbprints, their tongues ripped out and their fingers chopped off. George tries to back away, but there's nowhere to go. His heels strike the desk behind him, and he whirls. He pulls open drawers, smearing the handles with blood from his cut palm until he finds the silver lighter monogrammed just for him. The wheel hisses, thuds dully, a spark. He falls to his knees and holds the edge of the film to the hungry flame. The acrid smell of burning celluloid fills the room. George chokes on it, and he's never smelled anything more beautiful. Tears stream down his cheeks, but he's laughing too. Laughing and weeping and breathing in the smoke as Mary, Eva, Lillian, Eve, and all her ghosts burn. Hollywood Hills. It's blue up here in the dark, and everything below me is stars. No one ever sleeps in Hollywood, but they dream. I wonder what Mama would have thought of it if she'd stayed, if she'd kept running instead of turning back home. It's peaceful up here, with the wind and the smell of pine, cool water and the desert. All those haunted places I passed through to get here. Down in the valley, down among all the glittering lights, I'm there too. I'm up on the screen, caught in a thousand camera flashbulbs, pinned and framed and famous, just like I said I would be. There are whole constellations spread out in the dark. And I'm a star. I'm going to live forever. Just you watch. Just you see. This is another of those stories that I think we could talk about for hours if we were allowed to. There's so much to unpack. You hear a lot about how Hollywood starlets have been treated as disposable. And I love the way A.C. Wise takes that history and turns it into a truly terrifying ghost story. It's a very gruesome examination of the perils of exploitation and how that can be a form of entertainment. One thing I really appreciated was that as vulnerable as Mary was throughout the story, she was also portrayed as someone with incredible strength and a keen understanding of the world she was living in. She was never depicted as naive. She had agency and that was exactly what powered the supernatural elements of the story. Yeah, I really also enjoyed the story's critique of the film industry as this type of horror show. It reminded me a lot of Jordan Peele's movie Nope. Yes! Yeah, and how 
the characters both in that movie and the story are just trying to process their trauma by recreating it for the masses and how we as the audience should question why we find that enjoyable to watch. That is a super astute observation. Um, and, and did you catch the reference to the goat carrying the sins of the community being released into the desert? Yeah, I totally did. It felt like a thematic callback to one of our earlier two-parters, Usman Malik's In the Ruins of Mohajandaro. Yeah, it's a very striking image. I, I would love to talk to each of the writers and find out what led them to include it in, the, in their stories. I mean, I don't think obviously it was deliberate, but it's a really interesting coincidence. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but join us for our next episode when we'll visit the desert nomads of a Saturnine moon who experience a strange and disturbing form of reincarnation. And if you like our show, let us know with a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 51. Features excerpts from a film by A.C. Wise. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana Mfo. Performed by Julia Nippon. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Audio produced by Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Angela Yi. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.